Well, the thing you have to protect is you got to protect the nut, right? I mean, so the thing is, is I, I, we talk with our team all the time, you know, you got a 24 hour pie every day. And you know, the thing is, is you can't sit, you cannot insert something without taking something out. You just can't. And so the balance, the, the tough balance is, you know, if you're used to working a 40 hour week and you want to go launch a tech company, you better be able to do one of two things, cut your income by half or work twice as many hours. Because, you know, you either got to keep doing everything that you do and fit this launch in extraneously or be able to decrease your producing income so that you can spend that same time. And you know that Welcome to the Freedom Chasers podcast where we bring you interviews and discussions that share the stories, successes, goals and dreams of real estate agents and real estate investors pursuing a life of purpose and freedom. All right, guys, we are fired up to have Jason Franklin on the show today. Jason Franklin is an epic badass. He is doing 200-ish transactions a year, about $40 million in revenue. But that's not even accounting for the fact that he is getting ready to launch a revolutionary technology in the real estate space that is going to allow people to buy and sell properties online super easily. His partners are Jared Yellen of the 10K Project and Grant Cardone. So not only has he got this ball rolling, but he's got the attention of some really, really big names in our industry. So Jason, we're really fired up to get in, talk about real estate, talk about the tech. But as always, get us started with what is the craziest real estate transaction you've faced so far in your career? So I've got two and I'll, I'll make them fast so we can get into the meat and potatoes. Um, the first is I love on podcasts, on our personal podcast, Expedition U, you know, there's always a divide in our industry. People love to talk about the wins. They don't talk about the losses. And I think that makes it really hard on new agents because they can't spread the gap. So first, I'll tell you a story when I absolutely screwed the pooch. Um, and <laughs> so I had a great client. She was really, really nervous, single mom, uh, had really kind of gone through some bad experiences. And uh, so we sold her house. And then she's like, hey, I'm only buying one more house. I, I got to have what I want because I'm going to die here, right? And so we found her this super cute little house. It had been an Airbnb. It's fully furnished, everything that she wanted. So we get everything done. You know, financing was a little challenging. Uh, we get to the closing table. Everything's actually, no, we, the morning of, we go to do our final walk. And I didn't do a non-realty item addendum. The house is empty. So I'm freaking out. You know, and so and expl explain this. What is that? What is our non-realty well, addendum? Non-realty item addendum basically means that everything that's in the house is going to stay, or anything that was on the list of what you said. You know, hey, you're going to leave the TV, or you're going to leave this bed. Well, the the negotiated verbal agreement was that we were going to the house was going to leave everything: dishes, plates, napkins. I mean, the whole everything was staying. And we get oh, to the man. house, and it's empty. I mean, so oh. I'm on the hook for like 50 G's to re-outfit this house. Oh. So <laughs> luckily I have always made a point of making really good relations with the agents that I'm working with. And so I called up the agent. I was like, you know, I, I politely excused myself from my client who was freaking out right now. And I go out to the car and honestly, I just got down on bent knee and was like, where's the stuff from the house? She's like, well, you didn't do a non-realty. We didn't think you wanted it. I was like, sweet baby Jesus, I need that stuff back. And she's like, Oh, no, no problem. It's next door. We put it in the garage. And I was like, can I have it back? She's like, absolutely. It's like, I'll have movers here in 45 minutes. Also had a great relationship with the movers that we use. So, I mean, they were literally there in 45 minutes. Within three hours, everything was back in the house, you know. But uh, don't forget to pay attention to your documentation, ladies and gentlemen. 
you know. How long did it take you to recover from the heart attack you probably had? About three days. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. The stress waves are flowing over you. But what a great lesson in that, right? The, the lesson of treat people right throughout the transaction, make it a smooth process, because a lot of the real estate transactions between agents, even between buyer and seller, can become so contentious that at the end, if you didn't do your paperwork right, you are done. Oh, yeah. You are you are toast. So kudos to you. You mentioned a second story. Take us into it. Uh, yeah. I mean, golly, it's so hard to choose between these. I mean, because I've got so many, but I'll, I'll share one that's uh, that's kind of funny. And I've, I've got two versions of this story. I've got a version of a story where I went to a property that had been on market for about 120 days and um, had set up a showing and I get there and the property is supposed to be vacant. And it's very obvious. I'm knocking on the front door and uh, and I see like about 60 seconds after knocking because there's no lockbox for some reason. And uh, and I see somebody scurrying around the inside of the house and I'm like, this is weird. Like, the house is supposed to be vacant. And then the next thing you know, I see the garage door roll up and the house, the front door is kind of far from the garage. So I can't get over there. And I see the, the car kind of like peel out of the garage and down the driveway. Well, luckily for me, they had a magnet on the side of the door. The agent was sleeping in the house. What? The listing agent had been like crashing in the vacant <laughs> house. And so, you know, they tried to play it off cool, you know, but the thing is it was kind of hard to get away from the magnet with their name and their phone number and their picture on the side of the car. You know, so that was funny. And yeah. On the flip side of that, I've got a client um, from several years ago, super nice girl. But I mean, you know, she kind of did the walk of shame up the driveway to our listing appointment. You could tell, you know, hair's a mess. She was 45 minutes late. And then she proceeds to um, she's never answering text messages. And basically, she liked to drink a lot. And so she got walked in on butt naked in her master bedroom by another agent showing the house because she forgot to get up and leave for an appointment that we had set. <laughs> Whoa, this is so wild. Goodness gracious. That is so crazy. So, I mean, I don't know if those are the most appropriate ones to share. I apologize to your audience right. or not, but hey, that's, I mean, I've walked right. over dead animals. I've walked through forests of weeds. And if you, if you want to talk about the investment game, the stories get even weirder. You know, that's just residential. It is. <laughs> exactly. And that's, that's for me, that's what I love about this business is like the death of me is like going into work and it's the oh. same as Groundhog's Day. Like that would be the worst thing in the world. That's one of the things I love about this is as we interview people on the podcast, like the stories, there's ne they're never ending as they are in our own business. So kudos to you. I want to get into your story. Sure. And I'm going to just bounce around a little bit. And so let's start like you had this vision for the software and it's kind of an interesting philosophy because here you are, you're, you're doing a lot of transactions. You're helping a lot of people and you have this vision for the software that in some ways will kind of slash your own business a little bit. I mean, I know you guys aren't trying to cut the agent out, nope. but certainly commissions will get compressed and things will happen. So what, what led you guys to the idea of the e-commerce store for real estate and, you know, kind of take us into that journey. Well, you know, honestly, it's something that became really apparent to me. So you know, hindsight 2020, right? I intentionally never got into the investment game. I'm like, that's not my thing. I mean, but I've got a background in construction, plumbing, electrical. I've worked at electrician's apprentice. So I'm kind of like the perfect investor because I actually know what I'm doing, but just never really wanted to go down that vein. And then I had a buddy that called me about three years ago. And uh, this is just before COVID and summer before COVID. And he's like, uh, hey, you know, my father-in-law passed away. My mother-in-law's sick and we need to get rid of this house. And it just so happens the house is in the same neighborhood that I live in. 
And I was like, hey, not a problem. I'll hook you up. I got some investors. He's like, no, we want you to do it. It's our family home. We want it treated with respect. We want it to you know that it's done right. And I was like, oh, man, you know. And so anyways, we negotiated a deal and I'm doing this flip. So I ended up selling this house for like $360,000 and we got the appraisal back. And the day that we got back the appraisal, um, you know, I was going to make like 70 grand on this house. And when we get the appraisal back and I'm sitting there and I live in the same neighborhood, my house is a thousand square feet bigger. It's got two more bedrooms. It's really nicely updated. It's got a bigger yard. It's got everything. And so I'm sitting on the couch looking at my wife and I go, hey, if that house just sold for 360, ours has got to be like mid fours. And we paid like 270 for it two years ago. And she's like, yeah, that's cool. I like my house. You're not selling my house. And I was like, and I hear you. But if somebody shows up at our door with 400 grand, get a suitcase, you're leaving. You know, <laughs> and so, and I started thinking about it from her statement. I'm like, how many people don't want to sell their house? Not because they really, they want to, but they don't want to pay the $50,000. They don't want a million people coming through their house. They don't want a bunch of strangers looking at their pictures of their kids on the walls. And then we're rolling into COVID as I'm thinking about this. COVID, in my opinion, fast forwarded our society 20 years in the secular nature of how we live, right? Yep. It's like DoorDash. DoorDash was going to be good, but dude, they couldn't have prayed to God for COVID and gotten <laughs> right. better results, right? I mean, because DoorDash, I mean, exploded. And so I'm thinking- Right. If you're a conspiracy theorist, then <laughs> you believe that the tech companies created COVID, right? I think DoorDash and Zoom got together. And just bought the world, right? Right, right. So, I mean, I'm thinking, you know, somebody's got to have something like this. And so, I started thinking about it. And the first thing that came down on my mind is, I literally, I went and I googled tender for real estate, and I had this idea of like, you know, swipe left, swipe right, and yes, I like this house, and no, I don't like this one. And I found a bunch of articles where people had said they had created the tender for real estate, and all of them were just a remasking of the MLS. And I'm like, okay, that's not really what I'm vibing on. That's not what I'm thinking. And so I found it and I found exactly what I had built in my brain in two places worldwide, Singapore and Finland. And like this company in Singapore, I mean, and granted Singapore's got great population density. It's got a lot of real estate. I mean, but let's be straight. It's not Los Angeles, right? I mean, it's not New York, it's not Texas. You know, I mean, so the United States has the most prolific real estate market in the world. I don't care who you can argue with. You can say it's Abu Dhabi. You can say it's the, you know, the Emirate Islands. I don't care. I think it's the U.S. And so I'm thinking they did 4,000 transactions in their first four years in Singapore through a platform like what we're doing. And so then I found it in Finland and this company in Finland had been successful enough that they were being asked to franchise into Europe. And I'm like, OK, I got to get this thing built. And so really what it is, the, and that's where the genesis came from. Yeah, so that was an interesting, I, I want to I stop you here because I love the entrepreneur thought process and the journey of people who are creating businesses. So this product already existed. Walk me through, was there even a hesitation to build it yourself? Or was there a thought process of I should connect with these guys, partner, license it? Like what was the thought process to, to build it yourself? Yeah, I mean, so I think with anything outside of what you're used to, so many, one of the things that keeps me awake at night is how many amazing ideas never come to fruition because they're just too big. You know, it's like they, yeah. uh, when they talked about in 2008, these banks are too big to fail, right? And so we keep pushing a broken system 
because we're afraid to break the system. Right. I mean, it, it, I, there's kind of, there's a, I should put that on a poster. Um, right. Exactly. That in my, yeah, yeah. my own office, but we just keep doing what we do because we're afraid to mess up the status quo, you know? And so when I looked at these other businesses, first of all, I took ownership of it, right? Because it wasn't like I tripped into this business and go, Hey, I'll let me go do this in the U S it was like, I built this in my brain and then found somebody in Singapore that had the same brain as me. And so I'm like, yeah, that's cool. Um, you know, but I think we can make it better. I would fix this. I would twist that, you know, and then the next idea is how the hell am I going to build this? I don't code. I don't work at Google. I don't even know anybody that does know how to do that stuff, you know, but then, uh, you know, it's one of those, my dad always said, I'd rather be lucky than good because, you know, one comes in when it's more necessary than the other. And so I had, you know, in that same vein, in that same summer where I was coming up with this idea, uh, by four months prior, I was looking to really blow my business up. And I had uh, really been looking for an outlet to get in a bigger room with more people that were doing better business than me and things of that nature. And I've always been guilty of that. Uh, when I ran, I was, a I was a professional martial artist for 14 years, um, you know, and so when I was in that business, I went and hung out with people that were better than me. You know, I wanted to fight people that were better than me, you know, that kind of thing. And then when I came into real estate, you know, when I came to EXP, I went and found the biggest, baddest dude in the room uh, and brought them as my mentor, uh, you know, because they were doing like tenfold what I'm doing, you know, and then when I was looking. And I want to, I want to stop you here real mm -hmm. quick, because I think what you're talking about is so powerful. It wasn't my philosophy going into business. And I've recognized five, 10 years later, the mistake of that. When I, when I got in, I was bootstrapping it because I didn't have anything. And so I felt like I had to do it myself. How did you, how did that philosophy work itself out at the beginning when you're, when you're broke, when you're poor, when you're at the beginning, how did you afford, you put things on credit cards? How did you get in front of those great people at the beginning? I give 1000% of that to my wife. Um, you know, so I was a professional martial artist, you know, I had been, and I worked in retail. I had worked in big box. I was a district manager for a national company and I, I knew how to sell. I knew how to talk to people. I knew how to negotiate. I knew all these things, but I was doing it for somebody else's bank account. You know, it's that old story of the guy that's washing his Ferrari and the employee comes up and he's like, you know, you keep working this hard and next year I'll be able to buy another Ferrari. You know, right? I mean, so right, exactly. Yep. And then I, it's that really tall guy and he's got the, uh -huh. the, the black Ferrari. Yep. yep. You know, and so then I ran my school for about 14 years and I figured out running my martial arts school very early on that I wasn't selling martial arts. When those parents and when those people came in, they had an idea, uh, whether they had kid had gone seen Kung Fu Panda or if they had been watching Bruce Lee since the seventies, what they were buying was me. And so what I sold every day was me, you know? I mean, and I would, my school's in a very blue collar community, um, you know, and when we were charging 169 or $200 a month, that was a car payment. That was a portion of their house payment. And I had to make them understand the value of what we were doing so that they chose that over other things for their family or for the kids or for their personal development. And so August 26th of 2014, I went up to see my family in the panhandle and it gave me 11 hours front and 11 hours back of just where I wasn't a husband or a father or a business owner. It was just, I could get in my head and really, and think, and I'll never forget this. Um, so my dad was my original schoolmaster. He's a fifth degree black belt. My mother's a black belt, brother's a black belt. All three of my kids are multi-level black belts. And uh, I'm digging a ditch with my dad. 
and uh, literally digging a ditch. And I'm talking to him about this parent I was dealing with and this negotiation thing and everything else. And he stops and he just leans on his shovel. And he looks at me and goes, you're in the wrong business. You should be selling something more expensive. You know, and he was in the same business as me. And what he didn't know is that the 11 hour drive up there, I'm thinking about selling my school and going into real estate. And so I got in the car, I drove home, I pull up in the driveway, my wife steps out and I go, I'm going to sell the house. I'm going to sell our business. I got enough money to feed us for six months. I'm going to go sell real estate. And she straight up. I want to dive into this decision even more mm -hmm. because you're experiencing problems with the clientele. The, the response was not, hey, let's get better at solving these problems. The response was go sell something more expensive. Can you give us the nugget behind like yeah. the rationale for that response? Yeah, and, and again, without sounding ugly, you find out very quickly in that industry, in the martial arts industry, that if you're doing a family martial arts school, that it's about 80% psychology and about 20% martial arts. You know, because, you know, to, and the, the climate has changed. Thank God I got out of that industry. I mean, I love it and I got nothing but love for it, but no, not today. Um, you know, but the thing is, it's like, hey, come fix my kid. You know, and my dad, my dad's a Marine. And so when he was the schoolmaster, he would literally tell people, I can fix him, but don't ask me to fix in six months what you screwed up over 10 years. <laughs> yeah, he was not exactly PC, uh, you know, but the thing is, is that we found that, you know, I had to be able to sit down with, and I'm 28 years old at that point or 30 years old. And I got parents with 15 year olds that are 12 years, my senior. And they're asking me, Hey, what should I do? And inside my head, I'm going, I don't know, you know, but I have to sit down and really think about it. So what you have to be able to do is you have to look at somebody in the eye and tell them, Hey, listen, yes, I'm going to sell you this package. Yes. I'm going to sell you this program. Yes. I'm going to work with your child. Yes. I can help them developmentally, but I need you to be a better person. I need you to reinforce what we're doing. I need you to be a better parent, you know? And so it's those, it's not really negotiating, but it is finding the right way to tell somebody what they have to hear, but telling it to them in the way that they need to hear it. Right. Yeah. So it's always honest, always honest, but you have to curtail the language to the individual. And so when I'm having this millionth conversation with my dad about, you know, what we're doing, he's like, dude, Jason, you can sell anything, go sell something with more zeros, you know? And so that's, I came home and to my wife's credit, I told her I was going to sell everything. And, you know, I was 40 years old and she goes to her credit. I love her to death. And she says, you know what your responsibilities are, do what you got to do. And so I sold the house. That was August 26th by November 30th of that same year. So three months I had sold my business. I had sold my house and I was sitting in a real estate office. And within the next 12 months, I three X my income. Wow. 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 And then the rest is history. As they say, you start accumulating, you start hustling, you start selling houses. Where in your journey did the tech come into play? How long had you been in real estate before it was that vision started? You know, that bug started catching you. Uh, well, let's see. Um, I pitched Rift to the Cardone uh, family on August 21st of 2021. And I started in 2014. So seven years. Yeah, we both started in 2014. That's cool. We're on very, very similar journeys. So describe the early phases of being in real estate. And I would like to get some context and some color on you have all this contractor background, as you mentioned, mm -hmm. 
but you didn't want to go into investing. So kind of walk me through like what things did you love about being an agent and what really stopped you or, or made you turn off to investing? So I have another story for that. I know you, you said before that we started, you like stories. So in yeah. my family, it's what we call the channel view, the channel view effect. So I opened my martial arts school and it was killing it. It was doing really well. And as a matter of fact, it did so well that I went and opened another one in channel view. And I was like, I'm just going to take what we do. I'm going to duplicate it. But what I found very quickly is what I couldn't duplicate was me. And me, when I wasn't at this school, the one that was my bread and butter, and I was spending more time investing in this school, this school started to slide. And so what I ended up doing is after two years of trying to run both schools, I ended up selling the school, the second school at a loss, at a major loss, and then having to go back and rebuild the one that I had already built. You know, and so for when I came into real estate, every time I get distracted, you know, because I'm a serial entrepreneur, I just, I'm always, I'm just addicted to it. I'm always thinking of something bigger and better. You know, I live by the statement of always happy, never satisfied, you know, um, but the thing is, is, but whenever I come up with these new ideas, my wife is like, all right, cool, but we're not going to pull another channel view. And so when I was looking at investing and looking at all these different opportunities, it was like, you know, Hey, I'm making $200,000 a year just doing my gig, you know, or 250 or, you know, a couple of years ago, I made like 400,000 and she's like, yeah, why are you going to mess with that? I don't care if there's 50,000 on that flip. Don't, don't break it. Don't break the system. You know, but then I, I got pulled into it because of my friend that I hadn't talked to in a long time and say, Hey, it's my dad's house. And so I flipped that one. And I mean, that was my very first house I ever flipped. And from that flip came the genesis of rift. Yes. And so the flip and the profit didn't lead you to more flipped. It led you to technology. Well, no, I did both. Yeah. Okay. Cool. <laughs> the problem right with that flip is that I ran into, and again, we've done very, very well on a lot of our flips. Um, you know, we did nine this year. Um, we did four or five last year, a couple of wholesales, a couple of this, a couple of that, you know, but really I'm really more by, by coincidence than intentionality when it comes to that. Um, but the, probably the biggest problem I had with my first flip is that it went really, really well. And I made a lot of money, yep. you know? And so the second one, I was like, I got this and I overpaid for it and it sat for longer and this happened and that happened. And I mean, I still made money, but I mean, I, I think I've worked on that house for six or seven months trying to get it built and then sold. And I think I made like nine grand. You know, I mean, so R- roughly the same you would just selling a house for commission. Uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so I'm like, wow. <laughs> right. You know, but then me being the the str- headstrong person that I am, I was like, okay, cool. But then I went and did it again. I mean, you know, and so yeah, you know, lather, rinse, repeat. We have such a similar story on that. I was we both licensed in 2014. It took me four and a half, five years to get in the investing game, but once that door swung open, it was like. It was open. So well, I'll stop you right there. The I'll, I'll give you something that, that yeah, this yeah. is going to make you cringe. Okay. Okay. So knowing what you know now, um, I love, I don't know if you've ever done this, but have you ever done one of those maps where you're like, I met this guy and because I met him and sold him this house, I met this person. And then these two people, I met because yes. of them. And, you, and you look at the, the yes. Genesis story of like, I met this guy and this, this thing happened and I made a half million dollars. Right. Yes. So I had this, and I don't, where are you guys located? I live in California. Okay, you know what a honky tonk is? Like an old Western, I've heard like the an term, old I don't Western know what it is. bar. 
So there's this little bitty yeah. blue collar town and my client calls me and he's like, Hey, I've got this burned down bar I need to sell. I literally the thing had burnt down. Um, and so it's like $85,000. And so anyways, I put it under contract. Somebody's going to build something there. And this guy calls me and he's like, Hey, um, I'm interested in this piece of drum. I'm like, man, I already sold it. And he's like, you know, can you find me something else like this? I said, yeah. So I beat this guy up for like four months. Cause I'm a dog on a chain when I get a lead. And so I hadn't sold this guy anything, but what I come to find out, we had conversations that he does, he does some flips. Right. And so then I find out that they flipped like 2000 houses. And so then I find out uh, four months later, he calls me, he's like, Hey, we haven't even done business yet, but I love what you're doing. And I talk with my partners and we want you to come on as our exclusive agent for our properties. And I was wow. getting ready to walk out the door to go to a movie with my wife. And I remember hanging up the phone and I, I got a little teary eyed because this was early in my career. And I was like, that was a quarter million dollar phone call. You know, well, fast forward, he ends up later on deciding to liquidate his properties, his personal holdings. So he's got like 30 properties he wants to sell and they're all in not great condition. And so I had some, I had some conversations with, I had investor clients and some other wholesalers and stuff. And so literally for a year and a half, he'd be like, Hey, here's another one. There's a key underneath the, the front mat. And so I would like call three or four people and be like, Hey, there's a house down at XYZ. Never seen it. I didn't go do pictures. I didn't put it on the MLS. I could have bought it myself. And so like 30 of these houses, and I was making like two grand a piece because, you know, I'd be like, hey, you got the first opportunity. Flip me $1,500. I'm going to take 3% on the deal. You're not taking a commission X, Y, Z. And when I look back at that now, I mean, I left, God, $700,000 on the table. Yeah. That, that's what I was thinking. I was like 30 properties, probably a million dollars on the table. And now with, with all the information, like the Pace Morbies and all the people are out there, now these guys are wrapping up portfolios like that creatively and in other ways. And oh, yeah. It's just, it's wild. It is. Um, so I love this conversation talking about the Genesis. So tell me about the Genesis story of connecting with Grant Cardone sure. and, and the 10K project. Yeah. So uh went out to the first growth con and my wife sat at the beach and was like, you know, and got back and I'm not a Kool-Aid drinker. I'm like anti Kool-Aid drinker. It's just not my thing. I'm <laughs> yes. very, very like circumspect about everything. And okay, what's the angle? And I see how you're trying to sell me and, and Grant sells. I mean, that dude, he's like a selling machine. I think I probably get like 30 emails a week from them. And uh, anyways, and so I went to the growth con day one, day two, get done with day three and like all the way home. I'm just like, yeah, they did this. And this guy said that, you know, and I've got this idea. And then I came up with, you know, I told her, I was like, when we get home in the next 12 months, I am adding zeros to our problems to add zeros to our profits. And she was like, that absolutely scares me to death, but do what you gotta do. <laughs> and so then uh, I went back to the next growth con. Um, but in the meantime, um, she was like, okay, I get it. I don't, I don't fully get it, but you don't, you don't get excited like this and you don't take things hook, line and sinker and you're not a Kool-Aid drinker. So if you're vibing on it, cool, let's see what it's about. And in the meantime, while I was there, uh, we, they took us to this uh, private club in Miami and 50 Cent came out and did a private uh, concert. And so, you know, being the 40 year old dude in the back of the room, you know, I'm sitting there with a whiskey and I meet this guy from Nations Lending and uh, Casey, super good guy. And uh, he's like, man, you really should talk to my brother. You know, he does some stuff with Grant. 
And, uh, you know, we have weekly meetings. So I was talking about getting my, my office more tech forward. He's like, dude, we do Zoom calls every week. We got you know, Monday through Thursday and we ramp up our team every day. We'd love to have you come sit in on one of our calls. I'm like, cool. And so I sit in on a call. And then from that, his brother who owned the company, uh, Mike Searock, uh, uh, he's got a podcast and he's like, hey, you know, I'd like to get you on my podcast. And so calls me up and we schedule it. And before we get on the podcast, did it uh, back and forth, kind of like you and I did. And I told him, I was like, hey, just for a second, I got this idea and I pitch in this idea. And he's like, dude, that's cool. That's got legs. I think you can do something with that. Let me hook you up with Jared Yellen. Jared Yellen just started Project uh, 10K and it's called the 10X Incubator. Him and Grant are going in. You have the opportunity to come in and pitch a napkin idea. They've got a ridiculous moonshot. It's 10,000 businesses launched in 10 years, uh, you know, and they're looking for people with good ideas, but they're, they're super selective on who they want to work with. And so three weeks later, August 21st of 2021, I'm on the phone with them. I did a Zoom call, pitch my idea. And, you know, they got back with me and they said, hey, we love what you're doing. We love your passion for it. Um, I think because, you know, Jared Yellen and his company, he owns Sela Labs and or what was Sela Labs. So they've already got all the development. They can build it. Grant's got the megaphone. He's got the marketing. He's got the name. He's got the voice. And then I've got the boots on the ground in the back street, you know, the the street cred and the knowledge of, of the industry to actually build it. And then so we went out and did a uh, friends and family round. We raised uh, several hundred thousand dollars to build it out. And uh, right now we're putting it back out for our seed round. We actually have a meeting on Monday with a national broker uh, and we're interviewing uh, different brokers. We're going to take this thing nationwide. We'll be in all markets in 50 states within 18 months. From, from conceptualization to completed design to sales and rollout in 18 months. Yes. That's nuts. The software game is so fast. Like being on the fringe of it, being a part of it, that's what blew me away. Like talking to a lot of the CRM designers, which is kind of the space that I was sure. in. Like, it's crazy how fast that space moves the budgets that these companies have. It is, it is so wild. What sort of things like, okay, so you get this partnership and a lot of people think that's like the greatest thing in the world. And it is in most ways, but it also comes with kind of the backside of the thing, right? Like doing that in 18 months, what are, what are maybe some of the unforeseen impacts of this partnership that that uh, a viewer might not know without hearing it from you. Well, the thing you have to protect is you got to protect the nut, right? I mean, so the thing is, is I, I, we talk with our team all the time, you know, you got a 24 hour pie every day. And you know, the thing is, is you can't, you cannot insert something without taking something out. You just can't. And so the balance, the, the tough balance is, you know, if you're used to working a 40 hour week and you want to go launch a tech company, you better be able to do one of two things, cut your income by half or work twice as many hours. Because, you know, you either got to keep doing everything that you do and fit this launch in extraneously or be able to decrease your producing income so that you can spend that same time. And, you know, that's that's a personal choice. It's a quality of life issue. I'm very fortunate that one, my wife is my business partner. She and I have worked together in our business since 2003. I have not had a check from anyone other than me in, well, 20 years. You know, I mean, and so I'm very fortunate in that. And also our kids are older and they're moved out. Uh, you know, I mean, so 
I'm not at home raising a five-year-old and everything else. And so my lifestyle allows that a little bit more. And not only that, but I'm just like borderline of being diagnosed OCD probably. Um, (laughs) I go to bed thinking numbers. I wake up thinking numbers and I'm constantly, you know, I can't go to a restaurant without thinking about, I wonder what that chicken cost and what's their cost of goods and, you know, how much are these waiters making? I wonder what the overhead is here. And it's, it's a disease. (laughs) The business is inside you for sure. And that's one of the things I love is when you find something you're passionate about, there's, there's no, there's no lack of energy. And this is something that I talk about often. I mean, it's like when you're, when you're not where you're supposed to be, like you're counting down the hours, your energy's just not there. You get in the passion zone. It's like you've plugged into the circuit. Uh, So how, how do you balance? Do you balance or have you scaled down a 200 transaction real estate company and a growth trajectory in a software company that is, is, I mean, I mean, it's absolutely insane how fast you guys are moving. You know, I had somebody ask me recently, they said, how do you manage work-life balance? And I just, I kind of chuckle when people ask me that because I don't, I don't, yep. I don't balance it. And that's probably. It's integration, right? More than balance. Yeah. I mean, it's like, you know, I wouldn't suggest that anybody live the way I live. You know, I wouldn't suggest it. Um, but is it doable? Absolutely. The funny thing is, is that while launching this, my team's grown from four agents to 14 agents. You know, we're going to do 300 transactions this year at 65 million, you know, and, and I'm launching a tech company. Oh, and I flipped nine properties. Oh, and I've got this other thing. I mean, my wife did our taxes yesterday with our accountant and it's three corporations and 14 bank accounts. You know, I mean, it's like, it's not a small undertaking at all, you know? So balance for me, I don't know. I started taking a lot more vacations. You know, I mean, so I, I unplug. So I try to go on vacation at least four times a year. Uh, now, granted, like I'm going to Vegas next week for a week. Granted, it's also Cardone's Growth Con, which is their annual Super Bowl. But that's only three days. So I'm there for a week. We'll go chill. We'll go see some, you know, shows or do something. But you got to unplug. But at the same time, I get up every morning while I'm on vacation and I work for an hour. And I shut down every night and I work for an hour because... People in our industry deserve to be paid attention to just because you want a vacation doesn't mean that those agents don't need your help and that they don't, you know, the people aren't still closing on that house and you still have responsibilities. So talking about waking up, thinking about numbers, thinking about work, et cetera, like, were you that way, like as a little child or was it something like all of a sudden you discovered business and then something switched on in you and it was like... Life was different. You know, my mother makes fun of me all the time because like as a child, my whole thing was if I didn't want to deal with something, I went to sleep, you know? Mm -hmm. And so like they have pictures of me, like they've sent me in my room to clean my room up and they have a picture of me asleep on top of a pile of toys. Right. I mean, so like I I used to tell me when I was 15, I could take a sleep on the side. I could take a nap on the sidewalk. I can go to sleep anytime, anywhere, whatever. But I hit this point, um, you know, so let me go backwards to go forwards is I... I'm, you know, middle America, 2.5 kids, white picket fence, parents are still married, dad was an airline pilot, I had this utopian upbringing, and then went off the rails. You know, and this is a story most people wouldn't share, but from 18 to 20, I was really, really heavy into drugs. I mean, if you could snort it, sniff it, smoke it, drink it, whatever, I was really heavy into that. And then I met this girl, went on two dates with her, got engaged three weeks after we met, got married three months after the first day we met. And 27 years later, we're still married, you know? And so 
it's it's not something I would suggest for most people. Um, you know, but right. that that was the catalyst for me is because a year later we had a kid and then I was like, hey, wait a minute. Like I'm actually responsible for people. You know? So let's dive in. So so you get married. Mm-hmm. Was it the marriage like that triggered the turn on? Or it sounds like it was the baby. Like Kind of walk us through the struggles of, of coming into a relationship in that sort sure. of, I mean, generally people who are on drugs, particularly if it's everything they can get their hands on, they're, they're trying to fill a void of some kind. Walk us through the psychology, like how did marrying your wife change you? How did the baby change you? So I tell people all the time, I'm super transparent about it. If, if we had had any money, we wouldn't be married. Because when we got mad at each other, we had to get mad from opposite ends of the couch in our 600 square foot apartment because we couldn't afford to go anywhere. And so it forced you. I mean, we were 20 years old when we got married and like you had to just get mad in your one bedroom apartment, you know, I mean, and so you had to work things out. You know, that's one of the challenges I think with a lot of people when they get married later in life is like I tell people all the time, everyone's got baggage. Just so happens my wife and I's baggage matches. We've got matching baggage because we got married so young. You know, but the, the catalyst for me, and it's really interesting that you asked that because I literally had this conversation with my wife last night and it's, my dad really offended me once when I was about 14. And what he told me was, I will always put your mother before you. I chose her. I made you. Whoa. Yeah. And I was really offended. I was like, I didn't choose to be here and you're responsible. Da, da, da. And now I'm married and I'm like, oh, I totally get that. Right. You know, I mean, yes, I'm responsible for my children and yes, I love my children, but I, I took an adult being and said, I will love you and nurture you and be responsible for you forever for our, for our forever. Right. And there's, there's a responsibility that comes with that. The kids are going to leave. They're going to, if you do your job, right, they're going to leave. You know, I mean, they're going to grow up, they're going to leave, they're going to go do their thing. Sorry if that offends anyone. Um, So, you know, that for me in the beginning, I think it was having our daughter that, that flipped the script, but very quickly it came back to the opposite to where I'm, I'm very transparent. Now all three of my kids know I will love you and hug you. I kissed you. I told you bedtime stories, but your mom comes first. I don't know if I answered your question, Yeah, or not, but. So let's tailor it. Cause, cause you're on the right track. So basically for you, it was far more monumental to have the relationship with your wife than the kids. Obviously, I'm not saying that you you obviously love your kids. But but the marrying of your wife was kind of what set you on the path of being straight and the arguments that you had there in the apartment and so on and so forth. Yeah, without her without her I mean, I'm like, under a ditch somewhere. There's no question. Yeah. Give us give us some insight. What what did those arguments look like? Um, and you said the same baggage did she also struggle in those ways or like, and so, so how did she, how did she help you through? And like, did you view her efforts as the right method? Like give us some insight for anybody that might be going down struggling with this. She'll probably get mad at me for this, but so I was raised in a faith-based house, but we didn't go to church. My wife was raised borderline Pentecostal. Like, you know, don't cut your hair. Uh, church on Sunday morning, Sunday night, Tuesday Bible study, Wednesday evening, youth group on Friday. So almost like United Pentecostal, like like very, very conservative. Yeah, super. Yep. Um, and so what was interesting is, and she may, I don't want to put words in her mouth, but when we got married, I truly believe that she wanted out 
and I needed someone to take care of me. Right. And so it was just this perfect momentary time when those things aligned. And so, yeah, our mat, our baggage is matching, but that's really based on, on time together because, you know, over time I, I get to understand who she is as an individual and she understands who I am as an individual. We're all broken. Everyone's broken. And if they tell you they're not, they're probably more broken than they even know, you know, but the thing is, is that it's a matter of understanding how I can feed into her to make her a better person, but also understanding how she does feed into me, not just her knowing how to feed into me, but me recognizing how she feeds into me, you know, because the thing is, is that my dad gave me the speech before I got married. He said, Jason, he goes, if I could tell you anything prior to you getting married, because by the way, you know, imagine I'm in that drug addled phase of my life and I come home and tell my parents I'm marrying this girl that I've known for three weeks. They're like, Oh, great. Here goes another Jason. And you know, you know, and <laughs> right. so he stopped me and he goes, Jason, he goes, if I could tell you one thing before you get married, he goes, marriage is not 50, 50. He goes, it yeah, is 100, 100. He said, because no matter how hard you work, your partner will always feel like you're holding back. And no matter how hard they work, you will always feel like they're holding back. He said, so if you go into marriage 50, 50, it will not work. You know, and so, and I, and I really embody. This is the one of the most true things that I've experienced too. Yeah. You know, and then I think the, the major shift. So I got past that very quickly and, and got, I hadn't touched anything God in two decades, you know, and, but then other than that, I think the other big paradigm shift for me as an individual, and I know we're way off real estate here is when I was running my martial arts school, um, you know, I worked with my father and you know, my dad grew up and he's, he's a Texas story. Like he grew up in a lean to on the back of the house. Cause there wasn't room for him to live in the house in Oklahoma winters and, you know, put himself moved out at 14, put himself through high school, college, became a Marine aviator. I mean, just like, just this amazing story, hard to grow up under because he rode bulls and motorcycles and shot guns and jumped out of airplanes. And as a, as a young boy, it's like, well, I'm never going to match up to that. But he sat me down. I was probably about 30 <laughs> years old when he told me this story. And he's like, Jason, he goes, listen, I made it through the tumultuous stuff of my childhood for one reason. And it was, I made it through that because I knew that I was going to raise a family and protect my kids from having to go through those experiences. And that made everything I had gone through. Mm. Okay. He said, the saddest day in my life was the day wow. that I realized that they weren't going to learn from anything that I had done and gone through. And it was all for nothing. And I really embodied that because I respect my mother and father so much. And so I was like, the best respect I can pay to my parents or my mentor or anyone that's feeding into me is to really listen and really, really embody what they've experienced. And that's how I can take their history forward and make the next generation better, make my kids better, make me better and pay homage to what they've gone through. You know, whether it's having a parent that's yeah. bad with money and listening to that rather than perpetuating that cycle or being in an abusive home and not perpetuating that cycle or, or education. I mean, you can put this in any, any facet, you know, and so that was, that was huge for me. So your wife give, gave a hundred percent to you. You gave a hundred percent to your wife. What was the turning point for you in overcoming the the drugs? Was it a, was it a decision? 
that was so resolute in your mind and in who you were? Like, what was the turning point for you? Uh, it was two things. One, it was the Texas Department of Corrections. Um, <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah. Um, and two, it was moving, um, you know, because we were both in an area where my family was there, her family was there, and we picked up and moved to Florida. And I, I transferred with the company that I was with, and we had a new little apartment, but we weren't surrounded by family, and we really just had each other. And it was really becoming fully reliant and, and growing to a point where you trusted yourself to be wholly reliant on a person, right? I mean, because that's scary, you know, to, to give that amount of yourself or that amount of faith or trust to anybody is, is hard, you know, but when you, when you put yourself on an island and you've only got that un, one other person to rely on, you can't run to your mom, can't run to your dad, you can't run to your friends, your family, your boys live back in Houston and her friends live back in Houston. I mean, so you become wholly reliant on each other and that creates a bond that nobody can break. Yeah, and the change of environment removes those psychological connections sure. to doing drugs in certain places mm -hmm. and so on. So you have a new environment, a new set of connections, and that gave you enough psychological space to... Now, just kind of trying to piece everything together. So you kind of mentioned the idea of falling asleep on your toys. Mm -hmm. You mentioned the idea of that. And then all of a sudden this leads to this really traumatic time. Like when we talk about like the energy and connecting to the circuit and becoming the you that doesn't shut off, like, like how, how does that connect? Like it was always there. How did you, it find... was always there. The yeah. intensity was always there, but the intensity was fighting the intensity was racing BMX, the intensity was insert whatever. So it's just a matter of harnessing it in the right direction. You know, it was going from at yeah. 17 and never having touched anything illicit and by 20 having done everything, right? So even that intensity, <laughs> that, right? I mean, so it's just, it's, it's an energy that's in you. If pointed in the right direction is, world changing and if pointed in the wrong direction is world decimating you know it's just a matter of yeah. and you're off yeah. by one degree right you know if you're traveling a thousand miles and you're off by one degree <laughs> up or down yeah, yeah. I mean, and, and that's really what it's about you know but i i credit all of this to not just my upbringing and my wife and everything else but the people and getting in the right rooms and and understanding that i always want to remain a student you know, but also with that black belt mentality, never ask a third degree if you can ask a fifth degree, right? You know, I mean, they're both standing there. Why are you going to ask the lower rank how to do something, right? I mean, go to the top. So, I mean, I'm big on that and I got no problem. I tell people all the time, if I'm afraid of the word, no, I'm in the wrong industry, you know? I mean, so I'm not afraid of getting shut down. I'm not being afraid of being, I was told I was wrong. Um, you know, I'll, I'll give you one more story. I know you're short on time. I was uh, six months into real estate six months, right? 40 years old, never done this before. And my broker comes to me and he's like, Hey, uh, we've got this opportunity X, Y, Z. These Chinese investors had come in from New York and they wanted to build the very first micro condo complex in Houston. And these are like three to 900 square foot condos overlooking the city skyline. I mean, super affordable rooftop gardens and pools. I mean, it's just a, an amazing complex. He's like, you know, would you mind just kind of sitting and just listen to what the guy has to say? 
Well, fast forward nine months, I'm the marketing director for this new complex. It's a $30 million deal. I'm on channel two, channel 11, channel 13. You know, I'm doing news broadcasts and the whole thing and selling this whole thing. It all went to, it all went to hell in a handbasket because they got greedy and they ended up trying to blah, 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 whatever. But I had like, I think 30 or 40% of the units sold pre-construction, you know, and we had built this amazing sales center and invented new furniture. I mean, all of this stuff. And I did that in my first six months of real estate, right? And got what an introduction. 10 years of knowledge. Now I got slapped in the face and wasted, you know, nine months of my life because it didn't go anywhere, you know, but the knowledge that I gained, but it's just always being open to failure, always being open to success and always being willing to learn. Yeah. Wow. So many takeaways, Jason, thank you so much for sharing about your life and business. I'm just thinking about the takeaways, right? The switching of environments to overcome some of the major challenges, the, the channeling of this unbelievable energy that you have in the right direction, the lessons that you go ask a fifth degree instead of a third degree. There's so many things that could be taken away. So guys, if you're listening, write one of these things down, take action on it, share it with somebody you know, so that they can hold you accountable. Because freedom's acquired one action at a time. And if you get somebody to hold you accountable, you take action, before you know it, you're gonna be living a life of freedom. So thank you for tuning in. We'll catch you on the next episode.